life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June, I said that's life. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, good afternoon, y'all. That's how I started them before. Today, I get the opportunity to talk to a good friend of mine. Um, she is a licensed veterinarian, um, a badass powerlifter, even though she won't admit it, and an all-around cool, all cool person. So please welcome Nadine O'Neill. Nadine, hello. Hello. That was a very nice introduction. Uh-huh. So, so how, <laughs> was your road, how was your road trip? You recently, where'd you go? So recently made a move. Um, and then I road tripped up to Oklahoma for a wedding and then popped over to Arkansas for a job interview. How did um, that go? It was interesting. Um, wedding was a lot of fun in a really small town in Oklahoma, but a close friend from even before vet school. Um, and then Arkansas, it's actually a really pretty state. It's kind of one of those that I think is underrated. Um, and the place was great. Um, likes the people, great facilities, great area. Um, and then we'll, negotiations are in the process. So we'll see if I have a job. Okay. So they like you though. They want to hire you. Yes. Aha. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that is, uh, that appears to, well, I don't want to say that appears to be the case. They did tell me that. So Oklahoma, uh, you said, right? No, this, the job would be in Arkansas, but it's oh, Arkansas, close to the Oklahoma border. So it's not too far from Oklahoma. Uh, okay. What, yeah. what city in Arkansas? It is called Springdale. It's like north of Fayetteville where the University of Arkansas is. Ah, okay. Yeah. And how do you like the area? Small town? Yeah, so it's kind of like the best of both worlds. So it's a small town um, that it's on the outskirts of like a big city. So not quite a suburb, but you know, you're surrounded by pastures with cattle, which is exactly where I want to be. But then again, you know, you drive 15, 20 minutes and you're not too far from the University of Arkansas. So it's not like where I was previously where you have to drive 30 minutes to even get to a decent grocery store, you know? Yeah. So it's uh, kind of the, the best of both worlds. I really liked that aspect of it. Is the University of Arkansas like a pretty big school? Yeah, it is. Uh, okay. I think they're like the Hogs or something like that. I can't remember. What uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I think their football team is like a Warthog, right? Something like that. The yeah. Red Warthog. I should probably learn that if I'm going to go there. I mean, yeah, but, but then again, if you're not really hanging around the college, it's probably not a big deal. Yeah, I doubt it will be very much. So is the, um, the vet work that you're going to be doing there, uh, hypothetically speaking, if you do get hired, yeah, will it be similar or like the same type of work you're doing now, which is like what mostly farm animals? Yeah. So it's kind of, you have like, for the most part, to be in general practice, you have three divisions. You have large animal, you have mixed animal, that's both, and then you have small animal. Um, I, if I, 
accept this job, it is going to be mixed, which is cats, dogs, um, cattle, horses, goats, kind of for the most part, whatever walks in the door you see for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, so that's what I enjoy the most. Um, but typically the pay and the benefits and all that aren't as good as if you went just small animal, the money isn't as good. So uh, when you were here, you were doing mixed animal as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And what did you see like percentage wise? Um, what percent of your work was like large animal versus yeah. small and mixed? Um, so it depends on the time of year. So if it's along the time, you know, basically spring when everything's having their babies, um, it's probably in my case about 50, 50. Um, okay. cause I'm out of the three vets we had only two of us saw cattle. Uh -huh. Um, one of them wasn't as comfortable with it. Um, and so, you know, but most of the time it's probably 70% small. So dogs and cats and then 30% large is, was the layout at that clinic. Ah, uh, gotcha. So how, how, how many years will this be that you've been a vet? Was this your first practice up here in, in Bernie or yeah. sorry, uh, Blanco. Blanco. Yeah. It was, uh, my first year out. So first job out of school, first clinic. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, how was your first year? How, how you got one year under your belt or when did yeah. you, when did you first start? So I started June, was it May or June? I think I started in May. Oh, so almost first a full year then. I think maybe it was June. I started in June 1st. That's what it was. Um, okay. and so for, they always kind of warn you like your first year out is hard, no matter where you go, even if you go to like a great clinic with great mentorship and all that fun stuff. Um, just because, you know, they teach you in school, but it's so different to go out and be out on your own instead of having, you know, classmates with you and multiple doctors watching everything you do. Um, so a lot of it is learning. It's hard because you're learning like to be confident, to be like, mm -hmm. Hey, I went to school. I know what I'm doing, but to also, um, you know, also realize that you're going to make mistakes and learn how to kind of deal with that. So there's a lot of, um, what they call imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of those, like, do, what did I do? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even belong here. I don't deserve to be a vet. Um, and then it's a lot of feeling dumb. A lot of the time you're like, I have no clue. This is the first time I've seen this. Um, and for a lot of people, especially like certain type A vets, it's hard to learn to ask for help and be okay with saying, I don't know, and I need help. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's always, no matter what setup you go to, it's always hard your first year out. Um, and I don't think they really prepare students enough for that. In my opinion, at least where I went to school, Interesting. Uh, the only reason I really knew like, Hey, this is going to potentially be pretty hard is from other veterinarians or people that I was close with that graduated a year or two before me, they said, Hey, first year is really hard. Um, where I was working in particular, it was really hard because I was kind of forced to be extremely independent. So one of the things they teach you or tell you um, when you're looking for a job, the buzzword is mentorship. So find a clinic that recognizes that you're a new vet and that you need help and that's okay. And they're gonna be patient with you and understand that you're gonna have questions and you're gonna need help. A lot of the time I was just left on my own to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that made it really hard. And the second thing was, um, I really had no backup as far as clients dealing with clients can be pretty difficult, especially depending on what kind of personality you have. 
Um, and I didn't really have any backup, especially when you're new and you're trying to tell people, you know, like, I do know what I'm doing. Um, but you didn't have an older vet or an owner or whoever to back you up and say like she does and yeah. you know, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects that make it hard. Um, but that being said, coming out the other side of it, um, I learned a ton. I saw all kinds of different things. And I think because I was forced to be so independent, I have, this is going to sound cocky and I don't mean it to you, but I have an independence that I don't think and a confidence, I guess that I don't think a lot of newer vets will have because mm-hmm. um, I've literally been forced to be like, you know what, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but if I don't do anything, this animal is going to suffer from it. So we might as well do what I can. Um, and just the really, I guess the biggest thing is being more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes, I guess, definitely. I feel like it's more that than confidence, <laughs> but yeah. anyway, so it was rough, but, uh, I came out the other side better for it, I guess. So what, what school did you go to, to get your uh, degree? So I got my bachelor's and my doctorate from Oklahoma state. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bachelor and doctor, sorry, your bachelor's and doctorate. So they have a vet school there. Yeah. So they have a vet school there. So you don't have to get, it's different in each, each country, but here in the U.S., um, you don't have to get a degree before you go to vet school, but you do have to take prerequisite classes to basically say, like, I am smart enough to get through vet school. Uh-huh. Um, but I just finished my degree because there was points in time where I wasn't sure I wanted to go to vet school. So I wanted to have a bachelor's degree in um, mine's in. I think it's technically animal science. It's a bachelor's of science in animal science with a biotechnology minor. Um, So I finished that in case I decided that school wasn't for me and I'd have a degree. And then they have a veterinary school where I finished my doctorate of veterinary medicine. And is that like uh, the same as um, like med school where you do four years and then another four to do that, to get that, that degree? No, well, it's different. The timing is different. So for the most part, again, it differs by school, but for the most part, the first three years are more like sitting in a classroom and your fourth year is clinical rotations where you're getting hands-on experience. And then once you graduate, you're ready to practice medicine. If you want to specialize, you can do internships and residencies. So I think it's a little bit different in the sense of med school that like if I understand correctly, you have to graduate and then kind of go figure out what you want to specialize yeah. in and do all that. When you graduate from vet school, you can start working like you're ready to go. Wait, so how many years did you take in school or how many? So a veterinary degree is four years. Okay. I finished my, my undergraduate degree. So my bachelor's, I finished that in four years. And then how many more years of vet school did you do after you got your it's eight years total, four years bachelor's, four years of vet school. Okay, so it's similar then to getting a I medical degree. I honestly don't know how med school works. So as far as I understand, you do four years and get your bachelor's in med school. And then, or no, sorry, you do four years and get a bachelor's. And then you go into med school and do another four years. Then, I, yeah, I think the only thing that differs is like, specializing if you will okay but I I honestly don't I don't have enough med school people I talk to to know (laughs) so when it comes to um like going into vet school or excuse me vet school 
Did you mm-hmm. choose um, like a specialization or is vet school pretty broad where everybody learns about all different types of animals? So it varies on vet school, but for the most part, you learn about a vast variety of species, mostly because especially here in the U.S., your board exam covers all species. So I got questions about elephants, seahorses, cows, dogs, ah. cats. Now, granted, you know, a large majority of your board exam is going to be over the species that are seen the most, which is dogs and cats. And so they do that realistically. But that being said, when you start doing clinical rotations or like as you get farther into vet school, some some schools will do it before your fourth year. You can track, which means you can you can decide, well, I'm only going to see cattle and horses. So I'm going to mostly take classes that cover that. Uh Or I'm going to see dogs and cats. So they'll allow you to kind of pick and choose once you get to a certain point, like what you want to focus on. Mm -hmm. But when I was at Oklahoma state, they did not allow you to track. Everyone took, you can take electives that kind of went more towards what you wanted to do. But when you went to fourth year, everyone took every rotation with a few exceptions. Now they're actually allowing to track. And I believe Texas A&M does too. And I think most vet schools now allow you to track. You know how many vet schools there are in the U S or no? Not off the top of my head. I know there's only, well, with the, with the exception of Texas now, um, each state that has a vet school only has one and not every state has a vet school. I see. So less than 50. Less than 50 for sure. Uh, Okay. And each school or excuse me, each state only has one, you said? If they have a vet school, they only have one. Is there a reason for that? Well, I, you know what? I take that back. I think... Alabama has multiple because they had Tufts and well, Auburn. The so there might be is, exceptions to that. The cool thing is uh, we're on our laptops, so let's just Google it. Let's see. Yeah. You'll have to look it up because now I'm starting to States go back on what I said. Multiple <laughs> vet schools. Because I think Tufts is in Alabama and then Auburn, I know for sure, is a vet school. Let's see here. Allveterinaryschools.com. What? It says, wow, it says here, number one vet in the nation, Nadine O'Neill. Okay. <laughs> that's scary for the whole world if that's the case. <laughs> it's not good. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hold on. Dang. Not loading. Okay, here we go. Um, there are 28 U.S. veterinary programs and 18 international. There's only 28. Wow. Alabama has two. California okay. has two. Oh, I didn't know that. So those what? are the only two states with two. Can, does it tell you what the two are in California? Yeah. Um, University of California, Davis. Uh-huh. And Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona. Oh, didn't know about that one. And then mm-hmm. Alabama is Auburn University and Tuskegee. Uh, oh, Tuskegee. Okay. Yeah. One of the T ones. And then you said you went to Oklahoma State. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still. So Texas is about to have two veterinary programs. So right now they have Texas A&M and then where else are they going to have one? So tech, it's, it's going to be different than a typical veterinary program, but tech finally figured out to where they could have their, they're going to start their own veterinary program, but they're like, they're starting the building 
process oh, okay. and all that. So it hasn't started yet, but I think, I can't remember what year they're going to start accepting students. I don't know that oh, part. So do you, t- do you contact like your other vet friends that you graduated and ask questions? Do you guys communicate? Every day. Really? I have multiple group texts, uh, depending on what species. And then I also have people at school, like professors that I have one that I called almost weekly when I first started. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yep. it's definitely good to know that you at least have um, people that you can ask questions to without feeling um, like you're bothering them because you For guys are the same thing. For sure. And it also, in a weird way, when you're like, hey, I've got this really weird case, this is what's going on. And in your head, you're like, uh, I, I don't know, which happens. Um, it, it's almost reassuring when they go, yeah, that's really weird. I don't know either. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to call someone else that's, you know, more specialized in this, but at least I'm not an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. How did you choose? Um, so you, I wanted to go back. We started talking. There's a lot I want to ask you because, okay. so I, like I said, I have a friend who's going to school in London, the Royal sure. uh, Vet School in London. And I had her, I told her that, uh, I was going to have you on the podcast. Yeah. And I told her to put together a list of questions Perfect. Um, that she might have because she is a current vet student. Um, awesome. But before I ask, so how did you choose? Because I wanted to ask this before. How did you choose um, where you wanted to apply? Like, why did you choose Arkansas and how did that come about? As far as my job? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, initially when I got out of school, I interviewed for jobs only in Texas because I had lived approximately nine hours away from my family for the last nine years. Um, So I wanted to be a little bit closer to family because I knew, you know, first year is going to be hard. I want to be close to family. Um, So I just ended up in Blanco. Basically, I interviewed all over the state of Texas. That just was the clinic that I felt was the best fit for me at that time for multiple reasons. Um, and so when I decided that's, that's kind of something I'm, I'm going through right now is, you know, I left. So where do I go next? You know, do I stay in Texas? Do I go back to Oklahoma where I know a lot of people, um, or do I go somewhere completely different? So at this point, the reason why I landed on Arkansas was mostly because of the clinic itself. So like I said, the area was kind of, was a good area. There's lots of outdoor stuff to do. So I'd really gotten into hiking, biking, kayaking, all that stuff when I was in Blanco. Um, And I wanted to go to a place that had all that. And and it was close to Oklahoma where, like I said, I I know a lot of people. Um, And so that's kind of what- from there? So Springdale is like, three hours from Stillwater, where's where I went to college. Yeah. So like not far at all. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of why I landed in Arkansas. Cause it like, wasn't too far, but it was someplace I hadn't lived before. Uh-huh. So different, but not so different. Yeah. Um, at one point I was kind of given an opportunity, like not officially offered the job, but discussed an opportunity up in South Dakota and I was all about it somewhere new, somewhere completely different. I'd get to do a ton of cattle And then I was like, you know, it's a really small town. I know one person up there um, and, you know, it gets really freaking cold. So I was kind of like, you know, is, is that a good idea for me right now? You know, going up to a super small town that's pretty isolated. So I Mm. I decided against that for now, but. Gotcha. So how was the road trip? You took your pup? No, he stayed with my parents. Oh, so you went by yourself? 
So yeah, because I was going to like, I went up to Oklahoma, stopped for a wedding, went over to Stillwater, saw some friends, went up to Arkansas. So it was kind of, you know, a lot of time in the car and um, not that he's difficult in the car, but um, I just didn't want him to have to be in the car that much and then have to deal with like making sure he can stay those places and so on and so forth. So the road trip wasn't bad. I mean, I'm used to making that drive to Oklahoma anyway, and Arkansas wasn't too far. How many hours was it total? Or at least to um, Arkansas to where, for, so from here to Arkansas? It's nine hours. And so there's a stop in the middle, which was for the wedding? Yeah. So oh, I drove okay, that's like, not bad. you know, I drove approximately like seven or eight hours, stayed there for a couple days and then went over. So drove three hours over. So it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh-huh. Oh, right on. Did you do anything fun or like when you were, <laughs> bless you. <sighs> Thank you. When you were in, <laughs> sorry, okay. No, you're good. You're good. When you were in uh, Arkansas, did you stay at like what a, uh, a hotel or what? So most of the interviews I've been on, they'll set you up in a hotel. Um, oh, they'll pay for then, it too. Yeah, most of the pla- most of the places I've interviewed, um, at least when I first got out of school, but they actually had a little apartment that was like separate from their house, and so they said, well, if you're comfortable you can stay there or we can like set you up in a hotel, but I didn't want to be rude. So I stayed in their little, I guess they called it a barn dominium. Oh yeah. 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 It was really how, nice. How many, how many um, places did you apply to and interview for before you landed here in, in Blanco after school? I interviewed, Oh my gosh. I was trying to remember this the other day. I want to say it like, I want to say at least four or five places, but I was being very, very picky, um, about a long list of things. Um, I feel like in vet med, we kind of do it backwards, at least in my experience. And this is mixed animal clinics. So I don't know if it's the same with others, but basically like what happened is I, I would make contact, um, or vice versa. They would contact me because we have like a list of people looking for jobs and their resumes posted through the university oh so clinic that's looking for somebody you can look through the resumes and be like oh you know ah. this person looks like a good fit let me get in contact with them and then you know you talk back and forth and decide well do I want to visit and then you'd visit and then depending on if they wanted to offer you the job right then or say you know we've got one more person to interview we'll let you know um but there was you know, for various reasons, again, I was being pretty picky, um, because my goal was to find a place that I'd stay for long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I interviewed and again, for various reasons, I, I didn't like any of them until I got to Blinko and I liked that one. So I, and they offered me the job that day. So I, I took it. So with my friend, um, who's, uh, in London doing her school, would that be the same thing? Do they have access to international databases of their vet school and Mm -hmm. like people who've graduated? Yeah, so it's not so much, I don't know if you can post your resume, but there is, so it's avma.com or or I think it's .org, but basically the American Veterinary Medical Association has a website and people internationally can post job openings and you can post your resume so it's super easy because it's literally like a job site for veterinarians. And you can say, you know, if she decides she wants to move back to the States. She can look for jobs on there. That's who mostly posts on there. Obviously it's the American Veterinary Medical Association, but um, that has been the biggest help as far as finding a job. Um, we're looking even for externships. So while you're in vet school, you can spend periods of time at clinics. 
Um, again, mostly in the States, not all in the States. Um, you can find job postings on there. And then another one that's actually super helpful internationally is LinkedIn. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, and another question. So she was asking me, um, she has, I think this summer she has to do, um, a few weeks of like shadow work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, what are the chances, uh, that you know of, um, your clinic here in Blanco because we were chatting and she was thinking, um, so her boyfriend is my best friend. Um, and we were thinking they come stay with me. She go, go shadow. Do you know if your clinic would do something like your old clinic? Yes, for sure. hundred percent. Um, they would do that. I had two friends come and hang out and kind of hang out at the clinic. Um, and they, and they, all the externs I've seen there, they, you learn a lot, you get a lot of hands-on experience and they love having you there. And it's super fast paced, but in, in a good way, especially for a student. Cause it's not like you're trying to make the clinic money. You're just there to learn. Yeah. Um, especially, um, Dr. Hannah Richard, who's one of the, is the associate right now. I think they're, they're looking for a vet right now to replace me, but, um, hey, actually, you're, irre- you're irreplaceable. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, all three of them, honestly. So there's Dr. Barron's, there's Dr. Richard, and then her dad who originally opened the clinic, who kind of helps out a couple days now. Um, they're all really great teachers. Um, and I think they really thoroughly enjoy having externs. So for okay. sure, contact the clinic and let them know, you know, what date she'd be there. Um, and then, you know, she can let them know that she already has housing, um, a place to stay but they yeah they'd love to have her and they see all right kinds on. of stuff they have, like i've seen kangaroos uh-huh. um, i mean they were little baby kangaroos from a um quote unquote rescue um and like a coat of Monday. didn't even know what that was until i saw one to be completely honest with you i don't even know what that what was is it? so it's like a um like a South American rat type thing. A rodent. Rodent. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Not very nice. Um, we had to be very careful, but she'll get all kinds of experience and they, they're really great about, you know, sharing the hands-on stuff. So what, what's the, so living out here, cause I know that like Texas is a wild place when it comes to like people having exotic animals. Yeah. What is the weirdest or some of the weirdest animals you've seen out here? So you said kangaroo. Obviously, that's pretty crazy. Kangaroo, the kudamundi was interesting because we were trying to sedate it so that we could trim its nails. And apparently they really like good smelling things. So their owners dropped off like like basically a bath and body work spray (laughs) spray. And they did kind of like I don't know if it releases endorphins or what. And then we like poked it and sedated it wow so you almost drugged it up (laughs) we did we did that's the only way to safely do it especially with you know i'm sure the owners have a different story but you know this is an animal who never sees other humans so yeah um we saw a lot of axis deer and different type of antelope because there's like a there's multiple places around us that raise deer whether it's for hunting or um like petting zoos or again quote-unquote rescues so we saw a different a bunch of different types of deer we saw pet deer like literally it was like someone equivalent to a dog or a cat 
are, are the yeah. deer the pet deer pretty domesticated as far as like relaxed they're well trained e- yes until you try to restrain them okay <laughs> and they're not having it no granted the one that we saw was pretty sick um and she had already had a bunch of issues from birth and so i think she's pretty used to being at a vet clinic and knew oh. what was gonna happen. and so she was like mm, i'm okay whoa um, I've also seen like pet longhorns, which okay. isn't that crazy in Texas, but I just never thought in my career that I'd be treating a cow for arthritis. Uh-huh. They're just things that, you know, I'm not super used to. What about a zebra? I saw it in vet school. I have not seen one out here. Uh, okay. Yeah. Do you, do you handle like fish and stuff like that too? No, no. Okay. So let me ask. Um, I'm sure you learn about the anatomies of fish, but how do you go about treating a fish? Like, do you, I wish I could tell you because I have been sent. So, you know, we get like newsletters for veterinarians and, you know, there's, I read one about them doing surgery on a fish and I honestly have no clue how they did it. But Mm kind of, like I said earlier, they have large animal, they have small animal. Well, they also have exotics. That's a branch. So fish birds um small mammals so things like bunnies and gerbils you know those are all considered exotics and so that at least where I went to school like you really had to go out of your way to get that training gotcha so interesting what is the smallest animal you've worked on that you can remember um yeah I'm thinking through all the things I've seen like smallest I've worked on bunnies. I've worked on like baby chicks. Oh, okay. Um, I trying to think what else. Super tiny dogs and cats. Um, I think yeah, I think that's really it. Because anything else, I've been like, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> not experienced with that. Um, yeah, I think that's probably it. So with the animals you've seen, um, like I know, okay, so something that um. I guess is in my little base of knowledge is like a cow has multiple stomachs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ruminant. Um, for the most part is what you've seen as far as animals go, like the, um, the anatomy of the animals, are they all pretty similar? Uh, yes and no. Um, so like musculoskeletal, that's usually the same across the board with the exception of like chickens here or there, you know, certain species, but for the most part that that's the same, um, with the differences here or there that you kind of have to remember. Um, but you know, you kind of have your classes. So you have your small animals, they all tend to be the same, um, ruminants all tend to be the same. So goats, sheep, cattle, um, then you kind of start going into llamas and alpacas. They're a little bit different, but same general idea. They have three stomachs. They have three compartments. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, but for the most part, it like mostly translates. So if you can give a cow this medication, most of the time you can give it to an alpaca mm-hmm. and, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, there's always differences. Um, but and that's that's the hardest thing like you know you can give a dog a cat or certain medication but if you give it to a horse it's going to kill it so you just have to be very careful um 
So, and I think that's the hardest part is like you learn the anatomy and you start to get used to it, or you can always refresh yourself with a book or something, but it's the medications, at least in my opinion, that scare me because they vary so differently. Yeah. Um, you know, some, some very, very differently. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the hardest part, you know, especially when you're in school, um, learning all the different things about all the different species. Um, is there, is there an animal that is like anatomically, like very different, like, um, that, that you've worked birds. on personally? Birds. Ah, okay. Cause they have a crop and a gizzard and their, you know, their feces are different. Their GI is completely different. It just, everything's different. So um, you've worked on like their heart, all of it. So you've different. worked on like chickens he, or, uh, excuse me, roosters. Yeah. So I've worked on basically poultry. Um, that's really the only, I went on one externship where we worked on like parakeets and parrots and all those budgies and whatever else. And I, always felt like I was lost because I'd never really had any training in that. Mm -hmm. Um, even as much as like handling, like I didn't really, that was something I had to learn while I was there. So they literally had me practice going into cages and catching the birds. Catching them. Yeah. And how how would you go about like with a net or just with your hand? No, 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 no. So, um, very carefully, you know, you kind of corner them with a towel and then you basically very carefully wrap the towel around them but you're basically trying to get their wings tucked in and then yeah. that's how you, you know, around their, around their body with their wings tucked in, you gently hold them that way. Huh. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the one, basically any kind of reptiles and any kind of bird, mostly poultry, um, really throws me for a loop. Lizards? Yeah. I've never had to see one as a, pa- well, I take that back. That externship also saw iguanas, Oh, we saw something else and I cannot for the life of me remember what it was, but basically it was some kind of reptile. Okay. Require very specific care from the owners. And a lot of people buy those without knowing that. So Uh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what about like common Texas animals? I don't know if there are any that are domestic, but like, what about like armadillos? We squirrels. state of Texas limits what, citizens can do with those animals oh really yeah so you know somebody finds a baby raccoon that you know says its mother abandoned it this that on and on you know we as a clinic can see it if I remember correctly but they cannot own that animal or keep that animal unless they have a license so one of our technicians had a wildlife I forgot exactly what it's called, but basically she was licensed by the state of Texas that is allowed to rehabilitate those animals Mm -hmm. and then kind of determine, is this something that we can release back out in the wild or not? But that's usually the goal. Oh, I see. So she's raised, she's brought baby possums to work that she had to bottle feed every two hours. Um, She's told me stories of raccoons that she's raised um and things like that i don't think an armadillo is typically one because it can carry so many different gross diseases and all that right rabies all kinds of things but um i have heard of the possums and the and the armadillos and or sorry the uh possums how how common is rabies have you did you see any because i've heard rabies is almost uh eradicated it i wouldn't say eradicated but um it's not common i can definitely say that there's been one case while I was at Blanco that I was slightly suspicious of it, um, in a donkey that, um, oh. was acting very neurologic. 
Uh-huh. Typically the typically the protocol is to the only way you can officially diagnose rabies in an animal is to look in a very specific part of its brain. So I don't know what ended up happening with that because I left, <laughs> but um, she was acting very neurologic. Um, just, just something, something was wrong, whether it was rabies or I don't know, but the reason we were worried about rabies is because we didn't know a history on her. Other than okay. that, I haven't really been worried about it, Okay, but I'm yeah. vaccinated. So you, I mean, I'm assuming vets have to be. Well, yeah, the vet school, my vet school, and I'm sure all of them require that you get vaccinated and then you have to get titers tested to make sure you're still, your immune system still. What is, what is titers tested? So basically they like measure your blood for how many antibodies you have against the rabies virus. And so if it's too low, you need to get a booster. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Did I ever tell you about that raccoon story here in my backyard? I don't know. Okay. So, uh, there was like one day where I heard like a scratching at the back door. So I looked out the back door and I saw a raccoon, um, just like hanging out at our back door. And then I just left it. And then I came out to the backyard and I saw it on one of the trees out here. Um, and I wasn't really going to mess with it. Cause I know raccoons are pretty vicious. Yeah. So I kind of like threw some rocks at it to kind of get it to, <laughs> to scurry away. Yeah, and so yeah. it went, towards like the the back of our property and um i was sitting in the backyard i think oh i you know what this happened during a podcast i was doing a podcast with my buddy brett and um i was sitting here in this exact spot and i heard my dog crying and so i ran because i heard my dog crying and i had a feeling something was happening with her and the raccoon Mm. Cause she had gone back there where the raccoon had gone. And so I ran to my garage and I grabbed a shovel and I ran to the back and I saw uh, the raccoon was biting down on her nose, on her oh snout. Yeah. And she was just frozen, like out of fear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and the raccoon was fucking badass, Like it was winning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to, sadly, I had to get the shovel and I hit it yeah. in the neck. Yeah. And then with the blade of the shovel, I pushed its neck into the ground, almost like I was trying to cut its head off. Yeah. And then I held it there for like a minute until it stopped breathing. And then it let go of her and I killed it. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, but that freaking raccoon was vicious. And the teeth were so sharp. It's crazy how, how pointed their teeth are. See, and that's the thing. It's hard to tell with raccoons because like a lot of, I mean, the only way you can really tell with rabies that you suspect it is behavior and it can be aggressive like that but so can a normal raccoon so if i remember correctly in the state of texas you can send that in and get it tested to make sure or oh, okay. just, i i took her to the vet and just got yeah her shot right say, or you just booster her rabies vaccine at the very yeah, least, that's but, what i did um, all right so can i get started with these questions for you oh yeah sure okay excellent give me one second Let me look these up. Also. One second. Oh, no. Okay, hold on.
Sorry, guys. There's going to be a bit of a um, a what you call it, a little bit of quiet time right here, just because I'm trying to do this. Okay. Let's see here. Are these your questions or? No, so these are, I had her uh, like put together. Okay. Um, oh, I thought we had already started on this. Question. No, I was just, all the stuff that I was asking you were just questions that I had. Oh, okay. Um, all right, let's see. First question for you. Um, do you, oh, okay, interesting. Do you feel like you have to work extra hard to prove yourself being a woman? Um, especially in uh, like the farm as like a farm vet um, because you're working with, I'm assuming a lot of men yeah. um, who have like cattle and raise cattle and stuff. Sure. Um, that's actually a really good question um, because so for the most part, most vets are women. So we kind of have that going for us. Um, so on the small animal side of things, mostly it's because of how young I look that people question me, not because I'm, female. So that's good. Um, not that I enjoy people asking me how old I am, but, um, as far as the large animal side of things, yes, but not as much as I thought. Um, so, you know, I have two other large animal vets that I work with that are both female. That being said, you know, I'm in a small town where they're used to Dr. Barron's coming out, you know, her dad that opened the clinic and he's not a small guy. <laughs> um, way stronger than I am. And so, you know, for example, I had a case where I had to go pull a calf and I walk out and I could just see the look on the guy's face. Like, you gotta be kidding me. Um, I couldn't do it. And you think this girl's going to do it? Well, fortunately I have tools that I can use to my advantage that he does not have. Um, and so luckily so far it's worked out. Um, usually by the end of the call, they're kind of like, okay, she at least knows what she's doing. Or it was one of those cases that no, you know, no one's going to be able to fix that. It's too far gone. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, especially on the large animal side of things, whether it's my age, um, how, you know, my height, which is not very up tall or, um, that I'm a female, I, you know, I get comments here or there, but I mean, and it used to really make me mad, but once you get them enough, you just kind of go, all right, well, you'll see here in a minute that I'm perfectly capable. And I've, you know, I've, my first call for a horse emergency, it was the, um, it was a cop and he was trying to tell me what to do. And I told him, no. He was uh, telling you how to do your job essentially. Yes. He said, this is what you're going to do to fix my horse. And I said, no, sir, I'm not going to do that. That's old school medicine. And, then, and they've proven that that doesn't work. I'm going to do um, something else. Oh, so, shit. <laughs> Praise Jesus, what I did worked. <laughs> um, because, you know, he called me later and he was like, oh, hey, my horse is doing a lot better and whatever you did worked and thank you so much. And so his attitude completely changed. And there's going to be some people that their attitude isn't going to change. And it is what it is. There's not going to be anything you could do to prove them wrong. Um, but for the most part, once you go out there and you, uh, I mean, honestly, fake it till you make it. I mean, confidence is key. If you walk out there saying, I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm talking about, a lot of them change their attitude just based on that. So, Gotcha. Can you tell me the story about where you pulled that calf? 
I know you've told me, but I want to hear it again, but I also want the people to hear it just because it's interesting. Oh, um, uh, I guess, should I do like a warning? Like this is. She was elbow deep uh, in a, <laughs> in a uh, cattle in a uh, cow's vagina. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. So long story short, I'll give the less graphic version. Long story short, I walk out there and this old guy who's got to be, you know, not young. He is like, you know, I've tried, my hands tried, we can't do it. Are you going to even be able to do it? And so real quick, real quick, I got it out. Hold on real quick. Before you start, how do they know um, that a calf is stuck um, and make the call? Sure. So typically there's what you're supposed to do and there's what actually happens. So typically, you know, it doesn't, there's different stages of having a calf. Um, first you see uh, essentially the water break kind of like in humans. Um, and then, you know, she starts pushing. So essentially, you know, if you're standing there watching this calf or this cow have her calf, which is, you know, not always the case, if there's no progress at all within 30 minutes, something's wrong. But what will happen is they'll go out there to check on their cows and they see the calf hanging out and either the cow is down because she's exhausted from pushing or, you know, the calf is hanging there and there's no movement being made and they try to pull it and they can't, something's wrong. Um, But most of the time they go out and they see that they're down and they're not getting up because they're exhausted and they aren't pushing anymore. And most likely the calf is stuck. That's when they call us. Okay, so when you got there, how far had the calf come out? So all you could see was two front feet. Okay. Um, and the cow was down. Again, exhausted. She didn't want to push anymore. Um, and so they had tried to pull the calf um, their own way, and the calf was too big. So it, it just wasn't going to fit through her pelvis, mm-hmm. um, which, is a, which is a common thing um, when you have guys who don't really pay attention to how big their bull is. They're going to have cows that are too big for the cow to have. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So this is, kind of, this is why I was like, I don't know if I should give a warning. Um, the calf was dead. Um, it had been stuck without oxygen. So the water broke, no oxygen supply stuck in the cervix. Um, it it was dead and it wasn't going to come out. So there is a way that we can get the calf out that won't hurt the mom, especially if the Mm -hmm. calf has passed. So that was what they called me out there to do. And it's really funny because my technician was getting so mad way more than I was. Again, I've kind of gotten used to it, but my technician was so mad that they were questioning my ability that she took a picture of me doing all the work by myself and the two of them standing behind me with their arms crossed, watching me do it, the whole the thing. The two men. The two men, two much bigger than me men. <laughs> yep. So, okay. So how, how does that process happen? I want, I want details. So, um, essentially what happens is we do what's called a phototomy. And so when, when we are a hundred percent sure the calf is dead, we have to cut the calf into pieces because what happens is the, the pelvis is too narrow for the calf to fit through. And it's either what's called shoulder locked. So head comes out first. And what happens is either the shoulders get stuck in the pelvis or the hips get stuck in the pelvis. So what has to happen, um, there's different techniques depending on the presentation of the calf and what angle it's coming out at and so on and so forth. But essentially you take a wire and you loop it that um, has sharp ridges and you loop it around different parts of the calf 
and then you place it through something that's going to protect the cow and doesn't cut the cow. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you basically just saw and cut different pieces out until that calf is able to fit through the pelvis. Wow. Yeah. So how did you know that that, um, calf was dead? Like, how did you confirm it? Yeah. So there's different ways, depending on how far out the calf is. Um, sometimes they're as far as they're like, if they're stuck from their hips, their head is sticking out and you can sit there and poke them in the eye and tell them they're not breathing. Usually their gums are purple. Um, but with this calf, um, so one of the things you can do is stick your fingers in their mouth. So if you can't see the head, you stick your arm in, you stick your, you know, your fingers in their mouth and they're supposed to have a suckling reflex. So they'll start sucking on your fingers. That was not there. And then you can also kind of poke them in their eye and they're supposed to, you can feel them blink and kind of pull away. And that while your, while your arm is in the mom. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then another one is, um, the hair was starting to like the calf. I think she'd been trying to have the calf since the night before. Um, and the, the hair was starting to fall off and slough off because there was no blood supply because the Whoa. calf was dead. Um, and there's, there's a couple other ways, but in this instance, that's how I could tell this one was dead. Um, and you can also do another thing where you pinch their toe really hard and they'll pull back from you while their body is basically halfway in the mom. Mm -hmm. Wow. But what happens is if their hips are stuck, at least their head is out most of the time and they can breathe and it's not comfortable and they might have some issues, but that's okay. When their shoulders are stuck, their head is stuck in the cervix and they're not getting any oxygen. Mm -hmm. So that's usually bad news bears. Yeah. Um, so did the mom survive? Yeah, she, um, so she was down and then I, once I got the baby out, she tried to stand up and was still a little wobbly, which is not uncommon. I kind of expected that. Um, but I basically left, I, I medicated her and then left meds for the owner to give. And when I called they, she was up and walking around, which isn't always the case, but in this case she was fine. So when you do something like that, do you have to sedate the mother first so that she doesn't freak out? When they're down like that, they're so exhausted, they're not going to go anywhere. Really? So okay. I will give them an epidural so they can't feel what I'm doing, uh -huh. but I won't have to fully sedate them. But uh, we try to avoid that because we don't want the baby to be sedated if he's still getting alive or something. Blood supply from the mom. It's a little bit uh -huh. different in cattle. Um, cause they're, you know, the, the way they supply blood and oxygen to the calf is a little different than in like a dog or a cat. So you're more worried about that in dogs and cats, but I try not to sedate a cow that I'm trying to do stuff with in case she goes down. If she's already down, she's not going to go anywhere. So. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Next question for you. Um, why did you choose to be a farm vet and, um, did you have any background being on a farm or talking to farmers before even going into vet school? Sure. Um, so most of my large or farm animal experience is from undergrad. I did not grow up on a farm. I did not grow up with, you know, large animals at all whatsoever. Um, but when I went to Oklahoma State for undergrad, I was in the College of Ag. And so I end up you know, to get more hands-on experience, I got as involved as I could in research with all the different units. So pigs, cattle, beef and dairy cattle, um, basically anything they'd let me do. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of where I got my quote unquote passion for large animal um, was from that experience. It's just, a, it's a whole different kind of lifestyle. You know, these people, 
care about their animals, but it's, you know, it's a production to, to feed the world for the most part. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. And, you know, being someone who did not grow up in that and then learned a lot about it, there's a lot of common misconceptions and a lot of uneducated people trying to change people's minds about the ag industry when they know nothing about it. And so that became really important to me to kind of advocate for the ag industry through veterinary medicine. Um, but it's just, I don't really know how to explain it. It's a, it's a different kind of lifestyle and it's a different kind of practicing medicine than it is with small animal. Yeah. Um, but that's where, yeah. So I, I wasn't always, it's not like I grew up in it, but in undergrad is where I learned, you know, most, most of the stuff as far as talking to people and, and kind of the basics But. So you, so you chose to be a vet and then in undergrad, you found the passion for the farm animals. Yeah, I went to Oklahoma State with the intention of going to vet school. But once I started getting into the ag industry, you know, a lot of things I actually considered not going to vet school and actually just staying in, in food animal production in another way other than vet school. But it didn't, it just didn't keep my interest as much as vet school did. So then I just, then I decided, well, I want to be a vet, but I want to be a large animal vet. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, third question. What type of animal experience are you required to get in the U.S. prior to being a vet? Um, because in the U.K., there's a required amount of weeks to complete on farms learning basic animal husbandry. I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Um, is this before vet school or sorry? Um, no, sorry. Before you become a vet. So essentially, okay. Yeah. Um, and then it says, um, there is a required amount of weeks to complete on farms, learning basic animal husbandry and in clinics shadowing vets prior to rotations. Yeah. So we, have rotations we ha are required to complete and that's different depending on the vet school so there's okay. nothing in the u.s that says you cannot become a vet licensed veterinarian in the united states until you do this but that's because there's so many different vet schools um so basically to become a vet in the u.s the only thing that you have to do outside of the vet school is pass your board exam but your vet school might have certain rotations and hours gotcha. and things like that that you have to complete uh-huh. Um, as far like animal husbandry, she means just like basically taking care of large animals. So basic care, um, and, and things like that is okay, what cool. that means. All right. Um, and then how prepared did you feel after graduation? <laughs> I know you said <laughs> um, that they didn't prepare you prepared. for like the human to human aspect and all that. Well, stuff. there's a lot of it. Um, I think my school did do a good job of trying to prepare us for client communication. Um, again, that's different depending on each vet school. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I've heard, including, and I agree with this now that I know, is seeing animals in a vet school that's extremely specialized and people go there knowing they're going to have to spend a lot of money and they're okay with that. Um, and you have all these tools at hand, you have ultrasounds and x-ray machines and radiologists to read those x-rays. Like you have so many things at your disposal. Then you go to a regular clinic and you, some people didn't even have a blood machine. They have to send off blood to get blood results, you know? So you're saying some vet clinics? Yeah. So, well, just basically what I'm saying is being in a vet clinic, like an everyday vet clinic is uh -huh. so much different than being at a vet school. 
Okay, because of that clinic's going to have less equipment. Exactly. And you're going to have clients with extremely small budgets and you have to get creative. Ah. You know, you have less tools at hand and you don't have a radiologist to come look at this radiograph. You're looking at the radiograph and being like, I think I see something there. I'm not 100% sure. So you have way less resources at your disposal, whether it's a budget, other people to help, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so that's the biggest thing. I mean, I think the vet schools do as best as they can, especially when they require you to go to vet clinics to get experience before you graduate with externships. But yeah, I came out and was like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on? Um, but I mean, they can only prepare you so much. The best way is to just kind of kick you out into the world. So here's a question that I'm asking based on her question sure. uh, and your answer. Let's say you are the head of uh, veterinary licensing in the U.S. Yeah. Um, what is something that you would add to the criteria as a requirement that you feel would have prepared you better for the real world? More time, more externships, more time in real life vet clinic set settings. So shadowing more. Shadowing more. Because I went to three different clinics and saw things run completely different. Oh, at each clinic. At each clinic. Interesting. And I think that's really important because A, you can kind of start getting an idea of what you want to do as far as a vet because you have choices, but also like what kind of practice do I want to go to? It's going to help you decide what kind of job you want and what you're looking for when you're looking for those jobs. Gotcha. Um, and there's a lot of things that you have to deal with as a vet that they don't teach you in school. That has nothing to do with veterinary medicine. How do you communicate with your technician? that's really hard, you know, depending on, cause you're, you're not always going to get along hundred percent with your tech. There's going to be issues and you're going to have to communicate those. Even though you're a new vet, you feel like you have no clue what you're doing. This vet's been out for, you know, 20 years and it's way more experienced than you, but you're still in charge. You still have to make those decisions. Mm. Your license is still on the line. So things like that, you know, what do you do when a client gets pissed off? They don't teach you that. Yeah. Do you let it go or do you stick up for yourself? Mm -hmm. um, things like that. Um, you know, if you don't like your schedule, how do you bring that up to your boss and say, hey, look, like I'm overwhelmed. I, I can't do this schedule. So there's a lot of like real life things that they don't teach you in vet school that you're figuring out on top of how to practice medicine. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was something I was just going to ask you right now. Uh, oh, the vet techs, do they yep. have school to be a vet tech or? So there's registered veterinary technicians that have been through school and are licensed. But then they're not vets, right? They're not veterinary. They're they're veterinary not technicians. Yeah. Okay. It's a different yeah. degree. They're, yes. It's a different degree. So you can, the best way I can explain it is a nurse to a doctor. Gotcha. So same thing. So gotcha. they learn their schooling is shorter and they also learn more practical things, how to place a catheter, how to this and that, you know, how to run anesthesia, how to place an ET tube. Whereas we focus more on, you know, when we anesthetize them, what physically is going on in the cells, you know, we're more medical science, blah, blah, blah. I see. Um, a lot of places will have technicians that are not licensed but they are experienced or they are trying to become more experienced. Mm -hmm. So um, again, you know, I know there's different like 
types of nurses, there's some that are allowed more responsibility than others. It's the same thing. It's, gotcha. it's similar. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you describe your first uh, week or maybe a little bit more, your first month on the job? Sure. So they started me out just vaccine appointments. So it's a wellness thing. Most of the time, there's nothing wrong with the dog. They just need their vaccines. So they started off that way. And then they kind of somewhat slowly started transitioning sick animals. Um, honestly, I loved my first month because I expected to not know everything, you know, and I, and I knew that was okay. Like, it's okay. You're, you're figuring out where stuff is in the clinic. You're learning, you know, kind of what you want to do and how you want to handle things. Um, and then it was really intimidating with the sick animal starting, but basically what I would do is I'd come up with a plan of what I wanted to do. And then I'd go have a, another doctor double check me just to make sure I wasn't missing anything or whatever. And then basically it was like confidence builders um, because I'd go and, you know, they may say like, well, I might use this medication over this one if it were me, or, you know, you might want to think about doing this, but it just, you know, it was a good learning experience. Um, and it was laid back at that point. Um, wasn't a super overwhelming schedule um, or anything like that. But my first week on call was absolutely terrifying. Tell me about <laughs> so it. I was scared. I had nine emergencies. Um, they had told me, which again, this is completely out of their control, but they had told me on average, they usually get two or three emergencies a week. Mm -hmm. I got nine. And um, a lot of the emergencies, actually all of the emergencies that we got handled by myself, which is probably the hardest part is I'm so used to having extra hands helping me. Mm -hmm. um, I was completely by myself. And that first week was also the time that that guy told me what I was going to do with his horse and was bossing me around. So I was already frustrated. <laughs> um, that was, that was more terrifying than anything. Cause I was going to be on my own, no one to second, you know, double check me. Um, and then basically assessing and figuring out what am I going to do? And it was, you know, some of them were somewhat life-threatening and some of them were just like, yeah, I just don't want to wait till Monday, you know, or I, you know, I, I'm scared. I would feel better if you saw my animal, things like that. So it kind of varied on how severe it was and how big of a deal it was. But like I had a heat stroke dog. Um, luckily everything turned out okay, but I was having to like place a catheter by myself and it was all kinds of crazy. That, that was the most terrifying is, is being on call by myself. How does that work? Do most clinics do the same thing where they have like a, one doctor on call or is that special? Are there only a few so, vets that do that? It depends. Most, almost all the mixed animal clinics that I know of have on call. And so they usually rotate between the doctors and have one doctor on call. Uh -huh. um, so it kind of, you know, depending on how many doctors you have, that varies on how often you're on call. Um, and then most clinics have a tech on call too. So if you get called in, your tech gets called in. So you're not by yourself. Um, that was oh, the case with me. I see. If I like really needed help, I could call her. Uh -huh. um, but then it was going to make it more expensive for the client. Um, mm. And then I think there is still small animal clinics that have on call. But I think a lot of them these days, just for the sake of work-life balance and not always having to be at the clinic, they refer them to 24-hour like emergency hospitals. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question. What did you think about the 
Navle. That's the board exam, Navle. What does it stand for? National Accreditation Veterinary Licensing Exam? Question mark. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. So that's what you have to take in the United States for them to say, okay, you are good enough to be a veterinarian. We are going to allow you to practice in the United States. You have to pass that. Um, it sucked. It's like a nine hour test. Holy it's, shit. Maybe a six. I think it was, a, I think it took me six hours, depending on if you take your breaks. So they give oh, you breaks. Okay. But I think I was just like, I have to keep going or else I'm just going to stop focusing. It was hard. Um, you study your entire fourth year leading up to it. It's because it can cover any species. Uh-huh. Um, but, okay. Sorry, I guys, I pressed stop recording. Um, so you guys might on this audio file, you guys might cut off, but this is exactly where she just said uh, it was a nine hour or six hour test. Okay, go on. Okay. Uh, basically it sucks. Um, lots of questions and you're allowed to take like water and drink and snack breaks, but I mean, they like take a wand and make sure you don't have anything metal on you, like a cell phone. Wow. You, can't, not, you can't wear sweatshirts cause you might sneak in a piece of paper. Like they take it super serious. Um, and one thing I want to stress is I know plenty of people that are great, wonderful, absolutely amazing veterinarians that failed the first time. And that's perfectly okay. It freaks a lot of people out. Um, And I think I passed by like the skin of my teeth. I don't think it's like I aced the exam by any means. And honestly, halfway through it, I was like, I don't even know what I'm reading anymore. I'm (laughs) cross-eyed. But that's just one thing I want to stress is I had really good friends that, again, they are wonderful, great doctors. And it's just a very long, very hard exam um, that are now practicing and they're doing great. And it didn't really set him back at all, but just mentally when you're, you know, you've gone through this far through vet school and you're in the middle of fourth year, which is really hard with all the rotations and the demand and you're studying for this exam and then you fail it. And it's an expensive exam. Like I think at least a thousand dollars you have to pay to take it. Um, if I remember correctly. Um, you have to pay for the retake too. You have to pay for the retake too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing, but that's just one thing that I feel like, I need to stress is if you don't pass it the first time, it sucks, but that's like, you're going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. Good. Good. I like that. Yeah. I I feel better, even though I'm not, (laughs) even though I'm not even going to be a vet. I'm like, yeah, it's it's terrifying (laughs) taking this test. Cause every question you're like, if I just got that wrong, like I'm that much closer to failing. Yeah. And you get questions about freaking, like I got one about a seahorse. I was like, are you kidding me? I don't know. Did you take that there at school? So I went to a testing center in Lawton. Where where is that at? Southern Oklahoma. I forget. Yeah, it's so Uh, we went to to like specific testing centers. So people could be taking their like GRE or their LSATs or other like. Oh, I see. Tests. And and did you have to like stay overnight or was this just like a, a close enough to where? I stayed at a friend's house. Me and my friend Sam are taking it, and we stayed at her now husband's house. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. He was a great host. He made us breakfast and had a huge cup of coffee ready for me. What was his name? Josh. Thank you, Josh. Good man. <laughs> All right. Let's see what we got. Um, so throughout, so you've been a vet for one year. Yeah. Um, what was the toughest or most ex- intense experience that you have had um, being a vet so far? 
So <clears throat> I had a really hard time with my mental health, um, which ended up leading to declining physical health. Um, I, I was going to, I don't want to cut you off, but I was sure. going to ask you this later. Yeah. But um, before we move on, I want you to touch on that. And I want you yeah, to touch sure. on the Well, and that's, that's the most challenging thing. Do you want me to say something medically, like specific to veterinary medicine? Or do you want me to keep talking about that? Both. Talk about both. both. Um, so I'll just say, like, as far as the vet side of things, um, the hardest part about that specifically is probably just like having confidence in myself. There's been a lot of times where I had a suspicion about a certain diagnosis in an animal and I doubted myself and then I ended up being right. That's not always going to happen. You're going to be wrong. You're going to look back and say, I should have done things differently and that's okay. No one's going to be perfect, especially your first year out. But that was one thing my, my very sweet technician Monday, she's amazing. Um, she would honestly get on to me. She'd be like, you know what you're doing. You're smart. Trust yourself. And so that, that was probably as, as far as specifically being a veterinarian, like having confidence in your knowledge. What, your what about, what about toughest experience as far as like a, a call? Um, the, da, 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 da. the first, there's two, there's two cases that really stick out in my mind. Both of them dogs. One of them both of them border collies. Um, one of them came in, her name was Gypsy and she was really, really old and her owners came in and they were like, you know, she's just kind of been declining. Um, she hasn't been doing that great the past couple of days. And they were expecting me to like give her a shot and her go on about her day. I diagnosed her with lymphoma and we had wow. to euthanize her. You had, had to no euthanize her that day? Yeah. Wow. Because wow. I ran blood work and she had enlarged lymph nodes everywhere. So the thing with that disease is it, it, it goes so fast. It is so fast. And most of the time when it's diagnosed, the owners had no idea. They just thought she was a little bit under the weather, needed some meds, and she was going to go on about her life. Um, and that wasn't the case. So that was really hard because it took even me by surprise. Mm -hmm. So that that's the most challenging part is explaining to them this is way worse than what you thought and she needs to be euthanized. It's what's in her best interest. Mm -hmm. Convincing someone that the most humane thing is to euthanize their dog or whatever mm -hmm. pet is extremely hard. Mm -hmm. um, but you know in your head that you're doing right by the animal. Yeah. Um, and then the other case that was really hard is a dog that had cancer in its lungs. So this was a, um, guy who just moved to the area. Um, same thing. Like she just hasn't been doing right the past couple of days. And then we ended up diagnosing her with, well, that was the thing, as I said, you know, I think she has lung cancer and this is why she's showing all the signs, but we won't know unless we do further testing. He couldn't afford it. So we had to euthanize. And sure enough, after we euthanized her, we were able to diagnose that she in fact did have lung cancer. Um, and he had three little girls and he was on shift, so he couldn't come say goodbye to his animal, his dog that he had had since it was a puppy. Wow. Um, and all three of his little girls were in there saying goodbye. Wow. And the dog was just like, what's, you know, she had no clue what was going on. And the hardest part for me, it wasn't even like the three little girls crying, which sounds awful. But, you know, like I get it. It's hard, but this is what's best for the animal. 
the hardest part for me is when the little girls walked out before we euthanized her and she tried to follow them. And we had to stop her. And I was like, and I'm going to be crying this entire euthanasia. That like chokes me Yeah. That one. um, So we ended up buying a book, um, Dog Heaven, I believe it was called, that just explains like, you know, to younger kids, like, what why we had to do what we did and they're going to be in heaven now and they're going to you know and we all signed it and sent it to them um and it, it doesn't help anything but hopefully it makes it a little bit easier to explain to, to <clears throat> what's going on so that's the biggest challenge as far as cases and that specific how did you um diagnose and uh what did you see that led you to believe that the dog had lung cancer before confirming a test so i had a list of suspicions um, that was the top of it, mostly age and what kind of dog it was that bumps cancer to the top of my list. Cause she was like 13 or maybe she's a little bit younger. I think she was like 10. Anyway, mm-hmm. she was older and the complaint was that she was having a hard time breathing. Okay. So I listened to her lungs and on one side it sounded normal, but on the other side, I couldn't hear the lung sounds as clear as I should, which is extremely weird. So normally that means there's either fluid or air that is keeping me from hearing the lungs. Mm -hmm. So we did an x-ray and she has air and fluid in her chest cavity. Well, where is that air coming from? That has to be coming from somewhere. She doesn't have any injuries on the outside. Mm -hmm. So that means there's air leaking from the lungs. Um, Why is there air leaking from the lungs? There's a a couple of like super off the wall causes that it's that's possible, but they're really rare. And most of the time there's trauma associated. She got hit by a car. She was in a dog fight. She fell. None of those were things that had happened to her. Mm-hmm. So that led me to believe she most likely has some type of cancer that is eating away at the lung tissue. And she is now basically has pneumonia and a pneumothorax or air in her chest that is causing her to not be able to breathe as well. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now, can you touch up on um, the, aside from like uh, certain animals and, and experiences, but the, um, how you dealt with and understanding uh, mental health, the mental health aspect and, and just being a vet, what it did to you. Yeah. So fourth year of vet school, you know, we <clears throat> had someone, I don't think it was anyone that we knew personally, but we had had people who'd graduated before us commit suicide. So we were all kind of aware that mental health is something that is really struggling in veterinary medicine for multiple reasons, for a long list of reasons. For me in particular, I, the the main things were clients were just being so angry and mean, no matter what you did, no matter what you said, they were just always angry, whether it was the price of the bill, um, not having better answers, um, you know looking for you to make a mistake so that they can turn around, try to get a discount, you know, whatever it was, they were just being extremely mean, just super mean and impatient, so on and so forth. So that took a huge toll on me. And then, um, my, we were just so busy. My schedule was getting more and more cramped. So I was running around like a crazy person, just trying to keep up with all these cases. And in my head, it was, if I don't get to all these cases, the animals are the ones that suffer. And that's my fault. Um, 
And so not only are you dealing with angry or upset owners, but now you're feeling like the animal's suffering because of how busy you are and, um, you know, financial constraints, you can't really do the treatments you want to do, or you tell the owner like, Hey, this is what's wrong. This is what we need to do. And they say, no, I don't think you're right. And then again, the animal suffers. Yeah. Um, and so I just felt extremely burned out. Um, I was busy all the time to the point what, like mentally and physically to the point where, um, I didn't even want to do the things outside of work that helped me, you know, feel better, work out, go on hikes, go on, you know, kayak trips, whatever. I was just so tired. I just wanted to go to bed. Um, and then I, I got to the point where, um, I was exhausted mentally, physically, the clients weren't happy meet with me. It always felt like my boss wasn't happy with me. Um, and just doing the simplest things just seemed so exhausting because everything was so unorganized at this clinic. So it was just like at every angle, I had something coming at me. Um, and I got to the point where I dreaded going to work and I didn't even want to be a vet anymore. Um, wow. It got, this was after one year or within a, within No, a it was like six months in that I started feeling this way. And, um, it also really did not help that I was in a very small town and to get to anywhere I had to drive 30 minutes and COVID, you know, I yeah. tried to go to church, but it just, it wasn't the same because COVID and, you know, I'd go to the gym, but you know, it took me 30 minutes to get there. And then by the time I got there, I didn't feel like working out. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of on, honestly, my only way of socializing. And, um, it's not easy to make friends when you're exhausted all the time. Yeah. Um, so I was extremely isolated. Um, so not only am I dealing with all these things and I'm like giving, 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 then I'd go home and sit by myself and think about all the mistakes I probably made that day. <laughs> mm. Um, so it was extremely depressing. And then I realized that, you know, I hated, absolutely hated going to work. Um, and I even felt like my, not that, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I was scared that my patients were going to eventually start suffering because I was just, I, I stopped caring. Um, I did, obviously I still did everything I could for my patients that never changed, but I was scared that if this continued, what's going to happen to my quality of patient care. And yeah, like, yeah. you know, I got to the point where clients were asking me completely valid questions and I would get annoyed by it. I was like, why? I don't have time to answer your questions. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. Go Google it. And I hate that. I never wanted to become that. And that's the point where I was like, I need to get out because I'm becoming someone that I don't like. And I, I'm getting to really dark places. Um, because, you know, it even got to the point where I was like, what's the point? Like, why am I putting myself through this? Why am I even a vet? I'm not even a good one. Um, I've given, you know, I went through school. I'm in a lot of debt and I gave up, you know, blood, sweat and tears for this. And I hate it. Mm-hmm. What have I done? Like, what did I do? Um, and so that was something that was incredibly hard um, to a admit, admit that, you know, I hate this. And also hard to admit, you know, or realize that this is not my fault. I blame myself and said, I just need to suck it up. Uh, I'm just, you know, complaining too much or I need to have a better outlook and be more positive or I need to, you know, whatever it is. Um, those are the two hardest things like, Hey, this is not my fault. This is not something that I can just change with a better attitude mm-hmm. and be like, 
this is not okay. I shouldn't feel this way. So that, that was really, really hard for someone who's like, always tries to <laughs> get the best that I can out of the situation. And so, um, yeah. Do you have any, do you have any, um, shoot, did you change anything? Cause I'm getting a little bit of echo. No. Okay. It just stopped. Okay. Do you have any like advice, um, to her or any other vet students when it comes to dealing with the mental aspect of this. Yeah, so I had a lot of like, not a lot, I had a lot of anxiety in vet school, which you're in vet school, that's normal. But I, the best thing I could have done to prepare myself for coming out of vet school is I saw a therapist that helped me learn ways to face my anxiety head on instead of what I normally would do would just shove it away ignore it you know avoid it and he helped me with tools to face it head on that was the biggest thing um but while it was actually happening after vet school the thing that helped me the most was my technician one of my associates and my classmates telling me that this is not okay. You should not be treated this way. And you're not crazy. Like this is not your fault. And just reassuring me that this isn't how it has to be leave. And I think that was the most freeing thing is one of my classmates was like, you need to leave right now. Cause you're looking at this, like, this is it. It's never going to get better. And that's the most overwhelming thought is that this is never going to change. This is never going to get better. You're going to feel like this forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she said was like, leave. Why would you stay there? Just leave. And so I did. And, you know, I think for multiple reasons, um, that just ended up not being a good environment for me. It's not any one person's fault. Um, it's not my fault. It's just how it worked out. Um, so that's my biggest advice is, you know, really talk to good supportive people and, and continue to, cause you're going to want to isolate yourself and don't do that. Okay. Another thing that really helped me personally is as a Christian, I started really looking into ways of facing what I would probably consider depression, um, head on instead of just trying to fix it and make myself feel better and just avoid it and just try to be positive, you know, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? And really addressing those things um, and kind of realizing like, all right, let's go to somewhere where, I mean, it's as, it's as complicated or as simple as you make it. I don't like it there. I'm leaving. Yeah. And it took me a long time to make it that simple. Gotcha. It's weird. Kind of like uh, it took you a while to realize that you were in control. Yeah, exactly. Like I luckily in this time, there is so many job opportunities out there. Everywhere needs a vet. I have options. It hasn't always been that way, but right now it is that way. Gotcha. You know, and at this point it got so bad that I was like, I'll go flip burgers at McDonald's if that makes me happier than being here. Who cares? Yeah. It's as complicated or as simple as you make it. I'm not happy. I'm leaving. Good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you left and I'm glad your mental health is doing better. Yeah, it is. It's a lot better. And it's helping me kind of, as I go forward, you know, things to look for that I know 
will make me happy and yeah. hopefully prevent that from happening again. So when it came to like um, dealing with animals and, and such, um, did you become like jaded when it came to like putting animals down? Did it, or was like every time it was still just as hard? I, I feel like every vet is different. Um, some really take it to heart. Some can really block out the emotion. In my head, most of the time, this wasn't every time, but most of the time I knew it was in the best interest of the animal. And, you know, we always say that our oath that we take says to basically relieve suffering, whether that's treatment or euthanasia. Um, there were euthanasias that were a lot harder than others, whether it's because I tried everything I could and still couldn't save this animal or because I'd been, you know, I had been, you know, seeing this animal and then all of a sudden things, you know, for various reasons, some were harder than others, but for the most part, you know, you're helping the animal, but when you're doing high volume and you're doing so many, it can really take a toll on you, mm -hmm. especially when it's a lot of, they always tend to happen like all at the same time. You have a lot oh, of super sick animals. Exactly. You have a lot of sick animals. The owners are so distraught, but they either can't afford the treatment or they can, but I just don't think it's going to work. And I don't think it's worth putting the animal through that to try and save it, you know, I think you're hurting it more than helping it. Um, it can, it can get really hard mentally to, to do that. And, you know, you're not only putting in, you're not only ending a life, but like you are ruining, not ruining, but like you are changing these owners worlds forever. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so, there's more than just ending a life, which obviously that enough is hard, but these people are going to go home tonight and have to spend the night without their dog that they've had for 14 years. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, so that's, it, it didn't get much easier. It no. And the weirdest thing for me is when they thank you. Mm. I have good hearted owners that really put their animals first will thank me because they know how hard it is for me, but also that I relieve their animal suffering. And even if that's the right answer, and even if it's really, you know, it's still really hard to do. Yeah. So you kind of learn to compartmentalize it, but it's still, still sucks. Yeah, I bet. Okay. Let's see. Um, okay. Um, so she said, I know farm vets have a hectic schedule with being on call. Mm -hmm. How do you find, uh, you kind of, you kind of answered this, but how do you find work life balance and are there any tips on how to find that balance? Yeah. So it depends on the clinic. Um, some clinics, there's enough doctors that you're really not on call too much. Um, it also depends on, you know, most clinics will, you'll get additional compensation for taking emergencies. So some people think that's worth it. Some people don't, depending on what your priorities are. Um, my associate loved getting emergencies for the most part, because that just meant more money to pay off our student loans. I got to a point where I was like, I am not getting paid enough to get up at 3am to go deal with this. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time, you know, anyway, some clinics, they get 
a ton of emergencies every time they're on call. Some clinics you only get, you know, one or two a week. It just depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no real clear answer to that. But honestly, the most honest answer I have is just take what you think you can handle and um, you'll learn. Yes, I don't mind emergencies. They're totally fine. I get paid. That's great. Or I learned, I hate being on call. Absolutely hate it. But I understand it's a necessary part of being a mixed animal vet. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of depends. And that's something she can ask. That's one of the things I would say is, you know, ask them on average, how many emergencies do you get every time you're on call? Oh, Whether when it comes to applying to certain Yeah, training. when you're talking to a job, that's what I would ask. And they're, you know, most of them would be like, oh, well, you know, it's different every week. Okay, that's fine. But on average, yeah, how many yeah. do you get? And there's different schedules and stuff like that. But that's what I would advise just so she is aware what's going to happen. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Um, when it comes to uh, being a vet, is it everything that you thought it would be? Um, is it harder than you thought it would be? And when it comes to um, how you feel as a vet, is it more or less rewarding than you were expecting? It depends on the day. <laughs> um, as much as I got to the point where I hated my job previously, there were days when I know that I did good, whether it was I did a surgery successfully or I successfully diagnosed and treated an animal and their owners are so thankful, like whatever it is, those moments almost make it all completely worth it. And I feel like if I, you know, I find a better clinic that I fit in better and and have a better work-life balance and this, that on and on, um, I'll probably feel like, oh yeah, this is totally worth all the other stupid stuff I have to deal with. Um, so I think a lot of it depends on environment, um, and where you're at because I have friends who absolutely love their jobs. You know, there's always going to be things you have to deal with, stupid clients, unfortunate situations with patients, this, that, on and on, but there's things that make it worth it. Um, I'm kind of at it in between right now because the job I just had was not a good one. Um, Mm -hmm. again, for multiple reasons for, you know, but, um, I'm trying to find a job that makes me feel like it's worth it. So, um, that's one thing that I feel like a lot of people told me is don't give up on it just yet. So if it's, you know, that's probably my biggest advice right now is if you don't like the place you're at, go to a different one. Mm -hmm. Um, because you did work really hard and you did pay lots of money to do this and you want to enjoy going to work every day. And, um, so it, you know, there's certain moments where I'm like, oh yeah, this is totally worth it. This is great. And so, you know, I'll, uh, I'll get back to you on my next job. If I, if I feel differently, um, if I feel like it was all worth it at this point, I can't say it was, but I feel like that's not a fair answer because of my current circumstances. So makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Did you always know you wanted to be a vet? Like no. growing up? Nope. When did you uh, figure out? So I always knew I wanted to do something science related. Honestly, when I was little, I went to Yellowstone with my grandparents and I wanted to be a park ranger <laughs> for the longest time. Um, and I thought maybe like a research scientist and like, you know, go do research things like they put on National Geographic, but it was actually my mom that was like, oh yeah, you can, you can be a vet. So, you know, she kind of put that idea in my head and 
I went to high school and was like, yeah, I guess I'll just kind of like go towards that route and, you know, went to Oklahoma state cause they had a vet school and then going into undergrad, yeah, I'm going to be a vet. And I even changed my mind in undergrad if I was going to be a vet or not. But at the end of the day, nothing kept my interest the way the vet med did. I tried research. I tried all kinds of different jobs. I looked into getting my master's and PhDs and different things. And none of them kept me as interested as veterinary medicine. Gotcha. At what age did your mom tell you that you could be a vet? I want to say she's in the other room. Uh, I want to say probably junior high is when she kind of put that idea in my head. Gotcha. I don't like remember the exact moment, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, do you see yourself doing um, like large or mixed um, when it comes to uh, being a vet as far as like working with farm animals or um, do you see that changing? And also how easy would it be to change and switch to just straight? Yeah. So that's, a, those are actually questions I'm trying to answer right now with myself. Um, I looking at jobs, the trend is that small animal pays better, better hours and better benefits. So it's pretty tempting to go small animal. Mm-hmm. So I, actually, I actually posted a question on a vet page that said, you know, I, I want to hear from people who switched from mixed to small. Do you miss it enough? Was it worth it? And about 90% of the responses were, I miss it a lot, but man, am I happier being small animal only. Mm. And I absolutely hate that because Mm. typically for whatever reason, I mean, you can say that there's not as much money in large animal and I think that's part of it, but the, the culture of mixed animal medicine is practices in the middle of nowhere that'll see whatever walks in. And is also trying to be reasonably priced. So then you're not paying your vets enough. And they're on call all the time because the vet med doesn't happen between eight and five always. And there's no local emergency vet that they can go to where they pay people to stay there at night. It's only you. So typically they underpay you and you have crazy hours. And that's why, in my opinion, it is so hard to find mixed animal vets. Now it is hard to find veterinarians that are willing to do mixed or large animal. And I think that's the very reason why mixed animal or large animal is harder because you are dealing with cows that can kick you and break your leg. You're dealing with horses that are going to throw you and, you know, put your shoulder out of the socket and no one's paying enough to have to deal with that. They're not even paying for my health insurance if I do get hurt. Um, and so right now I am tempted especially with the amount of loans I have to go to small animal and make more money and have better hours. So, you know, that's something that I'm trying to decide if I, I want to do right now, which is hard because awesome. I, I love large animal medicine, but it's just like, I feel like I'm paying to do it. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. So working for a practice, Do you get um, assigned to specific farms or do they send out whoever is available at the time? It depends on the clinic. Most of the time, at least most of the time, if you've seen them before, they want to stick you with that client. They want them to see the same doctors over and over, especially if it's a recurring patient. So there's a bull I've been treating and he wants me to come back out there and look at it again, most of the time they're going to send me. 
Now, if it's an emergency, like one day we had um, a lady who had dairy goats and one of the moms was having trouble having her babies. It was whoever was less busy. So I dropped everything and went out there. Um, so it kind of just depends on the situation, um, especially with like sick patients, they try to, you know, send you, but it's also what you're comfortable with. So for example, I'm not comfortable with horses, but one of the associates is, so they tried to send her out to the horse calls. Um, or if it's, you know, Hey, I just need you to come out and vaccinate my cattle. They just stuck that under whoever, but normally if you go to a good clinic, you can express, Hey, I do or don't want these types of appointments. And they, good clinics will do what they can to appease you in that way. They can't always, but if you say, Hey, I'm super interested in ambulatory calls, you know, I'm sure they'd love that. Cause most of the time they're older guys and they don't want to do them anymore. <laughs> what are ambulatory? Um, where you go out to the farm rather than them coming to the clinic. I see. Yeah. It's just a fancier way of saying that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and next question, how difficult was it to find a job after you graduated? And, and what was the negotiation process like when it came to getting hired? Yeah. Again, a very good question that I wish I would have asked when I was in vet school, because that's one of those things they do not teach you. So that's a very good question. Um, I'll just kind of answer with what my experience was. Um, and I would ask any other vet that you can talk to that very same question to see what their response is. Um, me personally, right now, there's so many job openings, so many, you have your choice of where you want to go, what you want to do. And it's amazing. The hiccup is how many of them are quality places to work at. That's where you gotta, gotta figure that out. Um, I interviewed at a lot of different places. Um, some of them didn't have good enough technology. Um, some of them practiced really old school medicine, um, that I was not comfortable doing. Um, and some of them, my, the people I'd be working with are total jerks and I didn't want to deal with that every day. I mean, each place had a different reason why I didn't like it. Um, as far as contract negotiations, there's a bunch of different things you need to look at. Um, you need to look at salary, um, emergency compensation. If you get that depending on where you go, um, how how often you're going to be on call and then things like the benefits. So health insurance, blah, blah, blah. Um, and actually I'll tell you this right now before I forget, if she wants to like email me specific questions or text me, please tell her to, because I wish someone would have answered my questions like this and I'll, I'll answer them to the best of my ability. Um, and if I can't answer them, I'll find somebody who can, but anyway, um, negotiation for me is very awkward. Um, because it's kind of like, at least when you first get out, you're like, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing and I need you to help me a lot of the time, but I also want you to pay me more or I want this or I want that. And so it's super awkward. So kind of know the cost of living in your area, um, and kind of know, you know, a number in mind. So for example, I think the average mixed animal veterinarian in the United States, it's going to depend on where you live. But on average, at least in Texas, I want to say the pay is around 75 to 80,000 a year is the average. Some get way more, some get way less. That's up to you if you want to do that. Um, and so, and then you have to think of benefits and things like that. Um, so I would have a number in mind because I did not. And so when she handed me a number, I had no idea if it was good or bad. Absolutely none. 
Um, another thing that a friend told me that I think is very wise advice is let's say you get your contract and you're completely happy with it. hundred percent happy with it. She said, find one thing, even if it's super small and try to negotiate it just to see what they say and how they respond. Even if, you know, for example, if you get, you know, one week vacation and you want, you know, five days of vacation, but you want six or just something really small like that, see what they say. And they don't have to necessarily give it to you and say, oh yeah, no problem in order for you to think they're good people to work for, but just kind of see how they respond. That's something I'm going through right now as we started contract negotiations, which the negotiating is fine. They're a business, whatever. But then they started putting like, they'd start kind of creeping towards what I was asking for, but then they would put more restrictions on other things. And I thought that was shady. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing I'm dealing with right now. Um, And it's awkward. It's super uncomfortable, but stick up for yourself. You went through school for four years. You paid a lot of money. um, And yeah, you need mentorship, but you're also going to make that clinic money. So know your worth, even in, you know, worst comes to worst, you get a crappy contract for a year and now you know better ask for more the next time. You know, it's not like you're one and done forever. Um, Or, you know, say in six months, I want to reevaluate my salary based on how much money I'm making if you think I'm worth more. Um, so it's, it's awkward, but do it, <laughs> suck it up and do it. Cause that's, I really didn't want to, it's not, it's not a fun thing, but you need to get paid what you're worth. Gotcha. Nadine, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Um, I'm glad we were able to do this. Yep. Um, and, um, I really hope that we can do more. I, I as you gain more experience, as you, um, get hired at your next clinic let me know yeah um, I want to set up another call with you sure and um from what you told me and talking about the mental health aspect of vets anybody listen to this listening to this please be nice to your vets for real um, they're trying really hard and they don't make as much money as you think oh uh, one resource I want to mention for anyone that happens to be in the vet field um it's pretty popular now but there's one group called not one more vet and they're raising awareness of mental health in the vet med community as well as suicide. Um, and so that is a very good place to visit for um, any kind of resources or anything like that. Um, if you're a veterinarian or even a vet student, there is a Facebook page where you can post or you can post anonymously and you will get a ton of support, advice, whatever you need. Even if it's just a vent, people will be on there and be like, yeah, you're totally right. They're dumb. And sometimes that's, you know, that in itself is really good to hear. Um, so I would advise finding them on Facebook um, or if you're not in that med, supporting that group because they, they're doing a lot to really raise awareness and yeah, be nice to your vet. <laughs> Can you say that one more time? Not one more.com. Not one more vet. Not one more vet. Dot, is there a yeah. website? So they have a Facebook page and I believe they have a website. So if you just literally Google not one more vet um, oh. and you know, you'll probably see a lot of vet or profile pictures with NOMB on it. That's what that's for. Um, it. Cause we've had a, a lot of veterinarians committing suicide lately. So. Gotcha. Nadine, thank you so much. Of course. I appreciate the time and I appreciate the work you do. Yeah. Thank you. All right. We'll chat again soon. Okay, cool.